Great. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to share some of our experiences in bringing U.S. companies to Europe. And to do that, we're going to need to also, as we go through, we'll be answering lots of questions. You know, what's the most effective way, talking about brand and reputation, what type of entry into Europe is the most significant for your organization? And uh, we'll try to answer those questions as we go along. My experience comes from 40 years in the technology business, mostly running sales for venture-backed software companies. I've had the great fortune of successfully bringing several companies international, although I won't say that it was easy. We're going to talk about some of those experiences uh, as we go through the presentation today. So today we're going to be talking about a, a case study. I'm going to paint a picture for you a little bit of an amalgamation of a few of the companies that I've worked with and some of the challenges. And the agenda today is really we're going to talk about any name Inc. in Europe. This is a fictitious company name, obviously, but it's a, the story is somewhat based in reality. So there's some very real issues and challenges to discuss. Why Europe? Why the initial plan? Selected markets? We'll talk a little bit about what happened year one, year two, and year three, and some of the lessons learned. U.S. to Europe observations from the field. And then we'll discuss you know, some of the options for entering the European marketplace or any of the international locations that you may be considering. Talk a little bit about market selection and working with channel partners. And then we'll have a question and answer session at the end of this and, and be able to hope respond to some of the other issues that you may have on your mind as well. So a little about Europe, Donna. Yeah. I want to talk about the European landscape. Okay, so just to give people a picture, what is the opportunity in Europe? And let's understand sort of the scale of what is Europe, first of all, right? So there's 743 million people in Europe in compared to the 323 million in the US. Now, it's not a direct say, comparison because Europe has 50 countries, 24 languages, 28 currencies, 28 currencies. Just to be clear on that bit, right? There's 19 countries within the euro. Basically, while well, the UK as a significant market is not one of those. And there's 50 countries in Europe. 28 countries are in the EU. So not all countries in Europe are part of the EU. And as I'm sure you all know that the UK has decided they no longer want to be part of the EU. They're going to have that little bit of a battle and a lot of uncertainty in the market as a result over the next few years to see what happens. One of the lessons learned already is the fact that uh, even though you've got the uh, European Union, each of those markets are still very different from one another. It is not one market. Yeah, there's 87 distinct ethnic groups and strong cultures. Even within countries, there's probably there's many, many different communities of different cultural backgrounds coming together to make up that country. Even in different regions within countries can be different in how they do business. But there's a mix of developed. We know that the prominent countries, sort of the, the UK, the France, the Germany and such, the developed nations and then there's the developing and there's emerging economies. There's a very broad mix all across that spectrum across Europe. Mixed economies and strengths and go along with that. The other aspects, if we want to break it down, going into the countries themselves, Germany, largest population-wise and largest economy, 80 million. Again, they have a comparison of the US there on the right-hand side of 18.57 trillion in comparison to Germany, 3.5. In Europe, the, the GDP overall in Europe, the estimated around sort of figures about 16 trillion, so where the USA is, is 18.57. So if you go down through the significant markets, first of all, and then going into Central and Eastern Europe, where Poland will be the largest market there, Czech Republic second. And then you have the Nordics, Scandinavian countries, so Norway, Sweden, and so on. Southern Europe, Spain, Italy. Across this, very, very different countries, very, very different economies. If you want to talk about what's closest to the US, to culturally and otherwise, we'll go through details on that 
uh, to the session. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Any Name Inc., our fictional uh, our fictional company. It's a software business focused around SAP applications, and so taking them to Europe was not that uh, big of a challenge from a thought process perspective, as SAP themselves are located in Germany, as everybody well knows, and uh, a lot of applications, a lot of a uh, lot of companies that subscribe to the SAP uh, ecosystem resident uh, across the European landscape. Uh, it was a venture-funded company, very well-funded venture-funded company. Uh, revenues in the 20 to $25 million range, all of that specifically U.S.-based, and employees around 150 that were as well U.S.-based. So no real international presence to speak of, at least from a direct perspective. Uh, the sales at this point in time were largely direct sales uh, oriented in the U.S. series uh, or a number of sales individuals located across the U.S. in various regional uh, management, uh, the, kind of the typical sales organization uh, that you would find in most uh, software companies across the U.S. And some partnerships that uh, were very productive, you know, at various stages of their growth and development. Certainly, we thought that a relationship with IBM Global Services was, was a great way for us to leverage uh, the international landscape. And I'll tell you a few of the stories as we go along. Uh, and a few uh, smaller bars and systems integrators in local markets. Uh, seeking to expand in Europe because Europe was there, a, a revenue opportunity appeared. Uh, we had several early adopters that came to us that wanted to, before we knew it, we were making a push into Europe based around the fact that we had a couple of customers that were early adopters. And the fact that we had IBM Global Services as a partner to uh, help us along the way. So as we progressed through the initial Europe activity, IBM Global Services really did a great job of introducing us. It's actually, it's a double-edged sword. They introduced us to uh, many large European prospects, uh, both in uh, telecom uh, and automobile manufacturers, uh, Deutsche Telekom, Audi, Volkswagen, a lot of very prominent names, which was very positive for us, we thought, because those were great, huge, wonderful-looking sales opportunities for us. We had local systems integrators and bars, uh, predominantly in Scandinavia with some large opportunities uh, within uh, the SAP market in Scandinavia. So we went about, you know, trying to expand and get ready for this influx of business and hired uh, a sales director for Europe. And this takes two different forms, typically. Uh, one, maybe uh, a lot of companies take their top U.S. performer, top regional performer in the U.S. and uh, expect that they can take their experience to Europe and be able to promote the same kind of rapid growth and success that they did within a, within a region here in the U.S. Or secondly, they hire a European uh, manager for the sales process. And in many cases, that European sales manager may not have much experience with U.S. companies. So some challenges that exist, uh, you know, right from the get-go in terms of how do you go about staffing, how do you go about finding the right people to grow with. And then, of course, the uh, ever-present headquarters preference to sell the way we sell in the U.S. Timeframes and sales cycles, we expect them to be very similar. Because we had success in the U.S., we expected that same kind of success to take place in Europe. Uh, and as well, you know, in the U.S., we have a high propensity to sell at the highest possible level. And that doesn't necessarily always work well across the European landscape, but it's what we're familiar with, it's what we know, and generally speaking, that's what we try to implement in all of the areas where we sell our product. So in Europe, year one, uh, challenges with the IBM GBS opportunities. What we learned was that many of those opportunities were related to enterprise license agreements, where customers or potential prospects were very interested in additional solutions, but at the same time, they were interested in reducing the size of their ELA 
the rent to flyers license agreement with IBM, really working at the conflict objectives there. Uh, challenges with the regional sales uh, directive. Europe is not in the United States. The sales directive advice was largely ignored because we weren't seeing success uh, and we're being asked for patience. Uh, sales cycle structure is not the same in Europe and you really need to consider the local sales practices and process that takes place. A lot of it is built around uh, relationship building, but it's not relationships at the highest levels of an organization, but relationships where the decisions are initially made and then ratified at the top. So you've got to be very careful how you go about building it out. Removal of sales teams was inevitable as a lack of trust developed on both sides of the Atlantic. And I'm sure some of you folks on the phone have experienced that as well. Very expensive in terms of dollars uh, and just as expensive in terms of reputation. In today's environment with the advent of social media, mistakes in small markets can cost you a lot in terms of reputation. And that reputation can take a long time to rebuild. And that goes across the board for hiring as well as for selling and using. Year two, a uh, new European sales leader and team was brought in to try to increase the velocity of the sales process, increase the velocity of success. Uh, however, at the same time, that was brought along new sales leaders, but the same headquarters expectations. For the sales length for the U.S., it was typically 12 to 18 months. It became 18 to 24 months in Germany and other markets that we were entering a much elongated process, not the same kind of pace that uh, takes place in the U.S. And delayed confirmation of budget availability. It's it's not the same necessarily as, or as simple as asking, has this been budgeted? Uh, and I think that's changed as well in the U.S. Whether a project is funded or not really doesn't get determined until actually the customer has made a decision and goes for the final approval uh, to see whether the money still exists within a budget. Uh, communications break down again, uh, and no decisions ensued on the part of the customer. So year two was uh, was a struggle at the same time. Rinse and repeat. Uh, in year three, investments in the channel started to pay dividends. Not because necessarily anything was done differently, but because the fact that there was time uh, elapsed and the ability to leverage those investments early on started to come, come to fruition. The deal still started to flow. But that really, if you think about what the sales cycle expectations were, reality was now just catching up. Increased understanding as well as the heavy lift that's involved in getting partners up to speed. That's one of the things that is, a, is something that we underestimate quite a bit in terms of partnerships, how much effort it takes to make those partnerships actually productive and the kind of support that's needed early on to not just make one or two sales successful, to, but to make the partnership successful. Uh, and finally, you know, local sales references begin to add credibility. Those initial sales can start to turn around and bring you more, more business as, you are, as you're able to leverage this, the initial successes that may have taken place. And you also have a, a longer view in terms of the selection of partners and are able to make a better selection. And finally, the repair work the damages caused in years one and two is underway. Again, dealing with the reputational issues in small markets uh, hampers hiring partners as well as hiring personnel. Lessons learned. Uh, the initial plan was mostly solid, but it was based around successful relationship with IBM GDS. Localized VAR activity was opportunistic. It was based around a deal or two. And that's a very common problem is to sign up as a partner a company that may have had success with one or two sales opportunities in a market and believe that that's a sign of future success when in fact, there may not be very good alignment between the companies for taking the, your products to market. Expectations of results similar to the U.S. were way out of alignment with what the local experience was. So, the, you know, the real lesson learned is you need to listen and build trust between the U.S. leadership and the European leadership. 
And finally, the results were to remove the European sales talent and replace, again, rinse and repeat, which uh, is not a good place for anybody to be in. Finally, US to Europe from the field, it's not a single market. And uh, you, need, you really can't underestimate the time to revenue when expanding in the US, uh, when expanding in EMEA. Don't sign the first partner that shows interest with the attitude that, you know, what, what do we have to lose? What to expect, you need to really understand what to expect from your regional sales directors as you begin to hire, uh, to manage the local business in Europe, uh, and not to underestimate the investment required in marketing and sales generation. Finally, the uh, language and culture has to be acknowledged in each of the markets that you go into because they are very, very different as you go across the European landscape. So at this point, I'd like to turn it over to Donna to talk about some of the uh, the entry options. Very good, Bill. There are some questions that's relevant, but I think what we might do is is take some questions after this slide, maybe. And then if anyone else, any participants on the call, want to punch in any questions into the question screen or the chat screen, please uh, we welcome your comments and questions on this. So no doubt everyone has experience on challenges and successes in these things. Looking at sort of some of the obvious options, if you like, on what are market entry, right? So you could go direct, build a direct sales force, as Bill talked about with Annie Name Inc. Hire your regional sales director, go through the process, what it is to sell locally, go through the process and risks of hiring the sales people that can deliver for your organization. It is a high risk and costly in doing that, but the organizations decide to do that for many reasons. Firstly, it might be a challenge to work to partners for the products and services you sell. It may be a very busy market, get you in, and it needs sort of strong salesmanship to do that. And secondly, you may decide for purely for margin reasons, you want to retain the full margin of any business you don't want to share, and happy to take the financial risk and time frame in taking that margin. The other one is, uh, is going direct, finding local sales partners of various types, kind of to leverage their relationships and knowledge of the local market and to enable you to enter the market. Sometimes faster, uh, sometimes kind of larger deals, better credibility soon, but again, it does depend on the business. The other one is by acquisition. Acquisition is very popular and probably very necessary for service companies because it's hard to differentiate services unless you're very specialist but also very popular with product companies. If they are heavily funded and in a hurry and they can buy business, they can buy local customers in the market, they buy local teams and enable them to move faster with a new owner. So again, the risks involved in the acquisition, maybe sort of less so than in a direct, but the direct just takes longer. Many acquisitions don't work, as we know. So there is a capability that needs an organization to be able to do that effectively. The other one is a hybrid, a hybrid of partner and direct. Yes, have your direct sales organization and leverage local relationships. Therefore, you can invest in driving the sales, creating the markets, have more dedicated effort to be like or dedicated focus than the partner might oblige, but also to be able to leverage off the partner's reputation in the marketplace. And then does how you share the deals. But it, it is a, a good strategy as well, the hybrid, to get the best of both worlds there. Your strategy may vary on a market-by-market -market basis, depending on what the regional conditions are, depending on the market opportunity and so on. That, that can vary in the marketplace. I'm just going to look at a few questions here, Bill, right? The question is, will our brand or reputation from our current market transfer into our new market? A company with strong references in the US, kind of how does that transfer into Europe? Well, it, um, in, in most cases, uh, it doesn't transfer very successfully. It may get initial interest, but generally speaking, when people are looking for the references, they want references that are similar to themselves in terms of geography or perhaps distance to the supplier. I know, you know, the internet has 
uh, certainly shrunk the world quite a bit. But people still want to rely on local support in many cases. They want to they want to know that if there's an issue, if there's a challenge, that somebody's there to support them. Now, this of course is different than the SaaS model. Generally speaking, if if it's not a SaaS product, but even still. You know, people are looking for the uh, for the local rep. So even even throughout Europe, like if you're selling into Germany, and you might have sold in many countries all around Germany, they're still looking for references in Germany. Another one here, so for U.S. companies, the U.K. is a large market in itself. Is that not an obvious choice? U.S. companies into Europe as a starting point. Uh, in in many cases, it becomes the log- logical choice because of language and uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, proximity to the U.S. They're very technologically technologically oriented and so forth. But uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that your product is going to be successful there. Uh, it also doesn't mean that because of you know certain similarities, perhaps uh, to the U.S. market, uh, mostly from a language perspective. That they're going to also just uh, accept the uh, the distances involved. That, they, that they're not going to look for local support, local uh, representation for the uh, for the technology, and that doesn't necessarily then translate to uh, Europe because there's yeah. a, there's a wide uh, body of water. Although it doesn't seem that wide, the uh, the channel there does separate the UK from the rest of the European market in many ways. Yeah, and culturally, the UK is very different to the US. And depending on the sector you're selling into as well, it can be very different. Market entry into any market, how do you do this? So how do you get started? How do you get your beachhead? So in the example that Bill talked through, if you get your first reference sites, then you can build on that first reference site. So sometimes it might be an inbound inquiry. Sometimes it might be through a partner. But how do you build on that reference then to get that local credibility and to sell further in that marketplace? It's a slow build. You can push it further. That takes dollars. My market approach then on that basis, and what's going to carry you from one market to the next? Do you tackle one market at a time? Do you go multiple markets on a regional basis, particularly to a partner? If you're working through partners, you can decide I want one partner in the UK, another one in France, and another one in Germany, or you could find maybe a partner goes across those, like maybe IBM Global Services, if you have a proposition that suits that type of partner. Now, there are some large regional partners going across countries in Europe and much smaller than the likes of IBM that might be able to serve your purpose. So the regional partner approach, sometimes if you're approaching a market by market, and I highlight, and I'm going to talk about the market selection shortly, you might decide that an opportunity is, I want these five markets. But if you find a large regional partner that might be able to cover one of those five markets and maybe three others. You have to assume that where the partners are successful is, that's where the business is. You can just decide on what the partner can bring you as opposed to on a market-by-market basis. So another thing is, and again, particularly with the sort of the, the SaaS and cloud solutions world, that people are more and more seeking to sell remotely, especially with the smaller deal sizes. But in some cases, selling large deal sizes remotely and even selling on the basis of flying in for a week and out and a week in the marketplace and out. Now, Bill, I'll put back to you. How do, how do companies treat that type of engagement? We, we know you're in the country for a week and you have nobody else in the marketplace. Well, in some cases, that can work only with really with the early adopters in the market, though. Yeah. Uh, people that have got their own, uh, they're, they're more self-reliant, if you will. On technology, they don't necessarily require, you know, a lot of handholding. Uh, but that, generally speaking, is a very small portion of the market. It might help to get you started as a beachhead, first reference customers, as you mentioned earlier. But generally, it's not a it's not a strategy for uh, for growth. 
it's, and it is. I know for companies doing this, it is very challenging. Um, it's 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 wearing down a slow build. So it is hard on the team, and you need to decide if that's the investment you want to put in place because it does distract from other opportunities. The market selection. Now, so often come across companies who decide, I want to go into this market based on a customer inquiry, based on people I know. You need to decide have very clear criteria and how you select your markets. I'm going to get to that shortly, but firstly, uh, US companies in particular looking at Europe, the language is a challenge. Yes, they may want to speak in English and we want to do kind of things in the US structure and culture wise, but on the language side of things, firstly, where can you sell in English? What countries can you sell in English across Europe? So you have UK and Ireland, Netherlands, even though the, yes, Dutch is the language, many business people speak very, very good English at, at, in Netherlands, Scandinavian countries equally. And in other parts, it's sort of EMEA, Middle East and North Africa, they speak good English. It's, it's, it's an everyday language. Yes, they have their local languages, but English is very strong from that regard, pretty much throughout business levels. In other countries, I would say who, at what level of organizations, what decision makers can you sell in English? Senior teams, international companies, all speak English. They may have preference to their local language, but they all speak English. Highly educated uh, professionals in various disciplines, they speak English. And sort of, and then the local language may be needed for pre-sales or technical. So especially if you're implementing a solution that's involved in, we say, sort of uh, lower skilled workers in the marketplace or lower people in the organization, the, the local language may be required to, to deal with those particular organizations, those type of people. And then you have product localization. So product localization, in, they would say to you that in some markets, you don't need localized, localized product to test the marketplace once you find those early adopters and sometimes early adopter partners who will take on, test the product, an American version of the product, and then help you localize if they find that there is an opportunity for that product. And, and just to bring everything localized, not just the product itself. In the market selection, so how do you prioritize your target markets? And it's not because, as I say, about a single customer inquiry, not because of potential partner inquiry, because it's a great cost to have a partner with only one customer. And a one customer in a far off market that might not be a good market for you, it could be very expensive and you could be a loss making customer for reputation reasons you have to maintain that customer, maybe even maintain that partner. So it's just beware on how you make these decisions. And it's not, again, as I mentioned, you know, that you're somewhere you have a previous experience or contacts in, in a previous business, because it may be very different. What we're suggesting is that you have a structured approach in how you prioritize the markets. And having a structured approach is not just about uh, having the relevant information that one person, but it's to bring the entire team and eliminate all the opinions about what we should do and why. And, and, and having a sort of a decision tool based on market criteria, market research criteria, a lot of it's publicly available, that dictates the indicators in the marketplace and where the opportunity exists. So the points, what markets should you sell into? Firstly, where can you deliver into? Deliver, implement a solution, support a solution. And again, that skepticism might exist as regards, can we buy from a US company across Europe, are they going to be here? Can they support us? Do they have a local support structure to do that? So where can you deliver into the marketplace? And the next one is, where is the greatest opportunity? Forget language. Language shouldn't be a barrier in your business. As I say, look, at if there's 80 million Germans, language is not the, the easiest or not the hardest challenge to come across. The hardest challenge to resolve is a company that can sell your product. You should eliminate language from a high priority 
It may not be something you're comfortable personally, but as a company, it's something you should be able to deal with very quickly. And then what markets can you gain easiest access to? So if you just take those points and have a clear criteria on how you prioritize those markets, First thing I want to put here, right, you can do this direct and build up that capability, hire it in, or you can, if you're working through local sales partners, regional or local, you have the, the, their delivery capability and their support capability to tick that box and comfort for the local customers. And also, with the right sales enablement, they will give you market access, existing customers, first of all, and then their new business growth, and be able to plug into both streams of their business in those sides of it, and thus market selection prioritization. So Bill, I'll just take one question here. Right? What is the fastest, most effective way to test and enter Europe? There are so many variables to try to come up with one proposition that would that would be fail-proof would be very, very challenging to do. I think, you know, there's there's some trial and error involved. If there are some early adopters in a market, I think you need to really consider, is that a, uh, a market that can be full, more fully penetrated uh, or is it a one-off? Is it is an obscure enough uh, use case or a corner case for the use that doesn't really translate into any signal that you, know, you could build a market around uh, an initial entry point? It's very hard to try to come to one, uh, one conclusion. And as you stated earlier, Having a customer in a remote market that you have to support uh, can be very, very expensive and not very uh, leverageable uh, going forward. So you have to be very careful. I'm going to cover a few things on working through partners in market. So to open up different thoughts in how you might approach the marketplace, but not to address all those questions, we'll say. If you're looking for partners, first thing is to understand what capability you want from those partners. I'm showing on screen an outline business process, if you like. So, so you have sales from lead generation, qualification, sales closing, and then delivery and support. Standard high-level business process for an enterprise solution. So in assessing what capabilities you need in your business to be successful, then you want to understand what type of partners and the capabilities in those partners that you're looking for to be successful in the marketplace. For a referral partner, what you're looking for is someone who has relationships to target decision makers, someone who's credible in talking about the need that you solve. Someone who's able to ask the relevant questions to draw out if that need is a priority for them and budget and so on, to have that qualification, to be able to bring it back into your business. Now, referral partnerships generally are not proactive, but if you can get proactive referral partners, you can work very well. Then if you're moving into a reseller, whether it's a VAR or an agent, they have the capability across from lead generation and sales closing, so to be able to extract and understand that. And then getting into the delivery side. So you can leverage the credibility of a local delivery partner while you're doing all the sales. So if it's a situation that you want to maintain the full margin of all sales, you can also subcontract the delivery. You're not giving up the share of the sale, if you like, but just you are subcontracting the delivery in local markets and work off the credibility of that local partner. So that's another option. But also you can have system integrators or taking responsibility for the full process. The main points I'd like to take from this is, firstly, your partner according to the capabilities you need to sell and deliver your product. Don't just you know, give me a system integrator and give them an opportunity to change what they're currently doing and have them invest and you invest in them. You want to find that they have the right capabilities already and the right customer base already and enable that to work with you, for you, and for them. Just moving forward on the same team, like in, in finding the right partners, I say it's the capability you need to meet your objectives. It's been clear about the profile of that partner. And then in Intenego, we work through very, very defined methodologies to extract that and build that and verify that in the marketplace. That's through our partner type selection process and building an ecosystem. And I'll show an example of that shortly.
Then in that partner engagement, how do you assess that? Sort of how do you evaluate the potential partners? And then in the onboarding, how do you truly enable it? How do you really understand how the partner works? And how do you insert, if you like, how you are successful jointly with their capability and successful in their market? And thus on the onboarding side. And then those initial joint market engagement, trying to enable that as quickly as possible and setting out clear activity targets to make that happen. And then building that joint sales pipeline, that confidence in the marketplace, and then building a good cadence and rhythm to make all that work. On the ecosystem, so it's typically the way we look at markets is if you take this simple premise, there are organizations out there in the marketplace with relationships with your target customers and the capabilities to help you sell. So we build an ecosystem on that premise like this. So this is one, just one in the, in the banking sector. So you have the target customers, you have the influencers, you have the various types of consultants, the service providers, you have the various large resellers of different types, and then you have all the different types of solutions that might exist in the mind share of the needs you solve and related needs. You want to get into the head of the buyers, the decision makers, and then how does your solution fit into that world? And then how do you leverage off the existing relationships that exist to get to that customer, to, to get that initial contact all through the process of your business? And as I say, sort of, it's about evaluating the ones that make sense for you identifying who's going to help you meet your needs and the move forward. Next thing is kind of when you get talking to a particular partner to understand what partner fit is. So partner fit, as we put it, right, is, is really about understanding the partner's business, understanding that clearly they are selling to the right customers, clearly they are selling to the right decision makers. If you're not selling to the right decision makers and they're just down the corridor, that is still a challenge. So they're selling to the right people. They have an existing number of them already that they can bring you in and to have an engine to grow more. And partner fit is really understanding their business, then understand how you fit within them. It's not asking them, yes, we are great, and you're going to change your business to suit this big opportunity you're bringing you. It's about fitting in neatly to what they've got as much as possible. Because the less you ask that partner to change, and you're bringing them benefit, and you're getting benefit, the more likely it is going to work. The less you ask them to change. That's on that side. Bill, I'm going to hand over yeah. to you. And then we'll see how we stand for questions. In summary, uh, we've presented a lot of uh, a lot of challenges, relatively short period of time. There are answers. There is a methodology and a process to go, go through uh, to help work these things through and think them through logically, so that it's not just about you know entering uh, a marketplace chasing the next new deal. Uh, Europe is very large and a diverse set of markets. You can't look at Europe as another region of the United States and expect to have success looking at it from that perspective. We're, we're making it sound like it's a very complex and challenging process to go through to try to make these determinations. It's not. It's a very logical process, but it's one that needs to needs to take place in a very large direction. You need to have the right expectations, funding and the resources uh, required to succeed. There's uh, risk uh, involved with each of the types of uh, market entry strategies that you can put together. There's also uh, limitations in terms of the uh, amount of control you can exert, depending upon which process you decide is right for your company. But all of those things need to be considered. You can't chase the first shiny new deal as, as a plan for an international strategy. Because as in the U.S. markets, uh, there are early adopters in each marketplace. That does not necessarily make for a complete go-to-market strategy. It's fortunate to have them to drive some revenue, but doesn't necessarily mean that that's what your plan should be to focus on. 
prioritize the right markets based on clear criteria. We can help with that in terms of sorting through what the criteria is, but also on helping to crystallize what are the right markets based on that criteria. Uh, select the right channel partners and be prepared to support them. Uh, support is very critical, particularly in the early stages of the relationship. It will help to generate uh, revenue sooner, and with success comes more success. Uh, as, as you know, uh, local reference accounts will be what can help determine short-term or long-term success in a particular market. Localized marketing efforts to maximize the investment. It's not all about the internet. It's not all about SEO. It's, all, it's about what the local market dictates in terms of how they like to go about their research, how they go about understanding what's available in the market. Certainly the internet has helped in many cases, but there's still a lot of localization that needs to take place when you talk about entering a specific marketplace. And it's not all just one Europe. Uh, you need to use local expertise to accelerate the process. So there's one question here that's, again, it's a, it's a complex answer, but it's how do we decide whether we sell direct or indirect? Basically, the, the way we look at that, it's understanding basically what it costs you to sell yourself. Understanding all the costs along your sales and the market sales all the way through to winning a deal. And then determining the investment, the risk, and the pace of those deals and how a partner can impact that. That can be assessed financially. That can be assessed to the point that the CFOs would love to be able to see that justification and to be able to see kind of what investment putting in and why they should work through partners or determine how you, your company might learn to work through partners if you haven't done previously. So it is all about really how the partner can impact the pace, reduce the risk and reduce the cost in winning business. While getting into markets, as I say, getting markets faster or getting customers that you may find it very difficult to get into on your own right. And that's somewhat the basis of that one. There's one here, I'm not so sure we can answer directly, Bill, but we'll throw it out, is what trends in Europe are important to understand before or while entering? That's an interesting question. I mean, there's there's so many trends taking place today. Uh, you know, it's not like selling in the, in the uh, 80s or 90s anymore. The world perspective changes very quickly. And rapidly uh, towards towards the U.S. in in general as well, not just about uh, about products, but also about politics. And politics are no longer local. Geopolitics impact business expectations and relationships. And you know, people generally like to do business with people that they know. Europe has seen a lot of U.S.-based companies come and go, and then come back again. And you know, reputations are are something precious to be. Uh, taken care of. So, you know, the local relationships can help, you know, back to your earlier question about direct or indirect. Cost of hiring direct sales talent in Europe is uh, more expensive than hiring direct sales talent in the U.S. And there are also consequences from an employment perspective in Europe that are different from the U.S. So you need to be very familiar with what you're biting off relative to direct or indirect decision from that specific perspective, employees or contractors versus, uh, you know, working through a channel, the, the support requirements for each of those has uh, very real risks and costs associated with them. So I don't know if I answered the question or not. It's a very challenging question. Yeah, there, there's certain, obviously, in, industry sectors you're selling into. The trends in there are important too to watch but see, again you have currency differences I don't know if it's it's something to watch all the time but it is very much a financial decision if a, if a market's worth entering into it's worth entering into the, the currency exchange it's always going to be a factor even with say, Brexit and any concerns or the uncertainty around what say, sort of the UK UK is still a very strong market 
and it's still going to be a strong market, even though certain sectors are benefited and certain sectors are being impacted by uncertainty at, at most at the moment, but there's still a very strong market overall. There's always some things, but I don't know if it's, it might defer decisions on entering certain markets. Like I know that uh, coming out of Germany at the moment, uh, if it's borderline whether the company's going to expand into France or the UK, they might hold off on the UK for a moment and to see what happens. It might slow things as opposed to stop things. Firstly, before we close off, I just want to give a very brief intro to what Tenego does. Tenego, we are a sales channel development, sales channels for development and growth for companies. We do partner recruitment and partner management, partner program development and related services. We're very hands-on. That means we become part of our clients' team effectively in creating markets, opening up markets and helping to generate pipeline through partners in those markets. So we have many related services to that in helping people understand what partners make sense for them and they go through the analysis and the execution of that and just build up that organization. Our clients are typically established to a point and growing companies. So there can be 10 million revenues per annum upwards to hundreds of millions and even divisions of larger companies where they have a software division and they want to look at their markets a little differently or look at their channels a little differently than they have previously. We are very methodology, very process driven. What does that mean to our clients? It means that we want to optimize their time. It means that when we engage with our client, we understand precisely what we want. It's making our, anyone we engage with more effectively, like in trying to make the process overall more effective, faster results and so on. When we're evaluating a partner, we know exactly what structure we're taking, we know exactly what we're looking for and so on. Even though sort of Tenigo are pretty much operated all over the world, uh, we have on the ground expertise, uh, working with people like Bill in many different regions and expanding. The local capability obviously gives that local knowledge. It gives that capability in the ground for closer engagement with our clients and with partners going into the market and so on. That's about Tenego. On the Tenego website, this slide deck is available on SlideShare. We have many webinars, previously recorded webinars. There are many articles across the topic of channel development and markets on our website as well. And I want to bring your attention to uh, two upcoming webinars in the coming weeks. And one, the first one you see here is uh, how to learn from the big boys. So the giant software companies and their partner programs and what might be relevant to your company, whatever stage of your development. How do you learn from what the big boys are doing rather than selecting piecemeal on a partner program? What's relevant to yours? The next one is going to be very much focused on UK companies and the growth for UK companies. You'll see those available on our website. And also, there's many, many previous recorded webinars just covering different topics. And that's us for today. Thank you, everyone, for the participation. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, everybody, for attending. And uh, if you have any further questions, our contact details are uh, will be distributed with the uh, with the presentation as well. So thank you all.